0: From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast, discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy,
1: featured in the Medical News section of JAMA. I'm Becky Voker with JAMA Medical News. Emergency physician Emmy Betts of the University of Colorado School of Medicine joins me today, She's also a research physician at the VA Eastern Colorado Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center. During the last several years, Dr. Betts has merged her clinical and research interests to focus on firearm safety among adults with dementia. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Betts. My pleasure. How did you become involved in this issue? My research focus
0: has been predominantly on firearm suicide prevention and then also older driver safety. I'm really interested in what I like to call patient-centered injury prevention. How do we as clinicians connect with patients to help them prevent injuries and live healthy lives? And I think in some ways it was only a matter of time before my two passions kind of came together that seeing what we know from the older driver field and how do we help people make decisions about driving and then also understanding The risks of firearm access when someone is potentially suicidal and thinking about how those two realms intersect specifically in the context of cognitive impairment among older adults. And it's been a really fascinating area to work in. I think, as I mentioned, I think it's a really big issue for a subset of the population. And for folks who are going through this, it can be a really traumatic Decision, And there have been some horrific anecdotal experiences that caregivers have gone through, including sometimes being shot by loved ones. And so how do we help people navigate these decisions is what really fascinates me about it.
1: Have you treated patients who have come into the emergency department with dementia who have been involved in a firearm injury?
0: Thankfully not. I have seen patients who have dementia where we've had concerns about home safety, and I've had conversations with the caregivers who are there. In those cases, thankfully, the weapons were already all locked up. But thankfully, and, and knock on wood, I haven't yet had to see someone who was injured.
1: Do you think the risks of gun ownership or living in a home with a gun among people with dementia are under-recognized,
0: Yes, absolutely. I think when we look at overall epidemiology of firearm deaths, we know that suicides account for the majority of deaths. So mass shootings get a ton of attention, understandably so. But when we think about the risks our patients are facing, more often it's really risks from within the home. People often ask me, well, this dementia thing, is this really such a big problem? And I would say for a segment of the population, so for folks who have someone with dementia, And when there's a firearm in the home, it's a big deal, and it's a tough issue. It doesn't affect the broad population the same way, but I do think it's been really underrepresented for how complex it is in that subset of the population.
1: How common is gun ownership or living in a home with a gun among people with dementia?
0: We don't have specific estimates, but the prior work suggests somewhere between maybe 40 to 60 percent of households who have someone with dementia also have a firearm.
1: How does that compare with overall gun ownership among the general population?
0: That's probably pretty similar overall. You know, it's hard. We know that firearm ownership rates are higher among men and among, especially sort of middle aged to older white men. So it's hard to know how that translates into populations with dementia because very often people with more advanced dementia probably don't have firearms anymore. But we might suspect that certainly that older age group with cognitive impairment or early dementia may actually have higher firearm ownership rates than, say, millennial populations. But we don't have great numbers. We're hoping to have some data later this year in 2020 to try to get at that number a little bit better.
1: How likely is it that someone who's cognitively impaired will actually handle the gun, that they will recall where it's stored and how it operates? So that's probably going to depend
0: on the stage of dementia. You might imagine at early dementia, mild cognitive impairment, when people are still pretty high functioning, that they may be handling the firearm, especially if it's someone who, say, is a retired police officer or someone who is used to even daily handling their weapon. As impairment progresses, it's likely that the frequency of handling might decrease, but we don't really know. I think the realm where we're really worried about the frequent access is probably on the earlier stages of dementia, earlier to moderate. By the time people have severe impairment, they're probably not accessing weapons. They certainly shouldn't be, but they also probably aren't going to be able to go looking for them.
1: And are people with dementia at greater risk of injury or death from a firearm that they own or that's kept in their home than people who don't have cognitive decline?
0: also something that we don't have a great answer for. We know that among all older adults, when you look at all firearm deaths, about 91% of them are suicides. So we do know that among older adults with and without dementia, the biggest risk of firearm death is suicide. Very often that's a firearm that they own or is otherwise in the home. We know suicide rates are particularly high among older white men who are often the firearm owner as well. So when we think about folks with dementia, we do know that, especially at the earlier stages, there may be an increased risk of suicide. And so having a firearm, we know, increases that risk even more than because of the lethality of that method compared to, say, other methods. But in the context of dementia, we certainly worry about the potential risk to others in the home as well.
1: And what is the primary care physician's role in this issue as you see it?
0: I would say that for primary care physicians who are caring for older adults with cognitive impairment or early dementia, this is something that should be brought up in the same way that we bring up things like driving and general home safety. It may not be an issue on the day of diagnosis, but it probably will become one. We know that firearm ownership, like driving and like other things that can be closely tied to somebody's identity... It can be a really difficult topic to broach and a difficult topic for individuals and families to deal with. So ideally, people have time to prepare. They have time to make their own decisions. I think what we really want is for families and the person with dementia to be proactively making decisions about where the firearms are going to be stored, where they're going to go, so that it doesn't come down to getting police involved or certainly having someone get hurt. So for primary care physicians, I think the first step is really just having it on the radar and then directing people to resources that can help them make decisions.
1: What would some of those resources be?
0: So there are some general checklists. The Alzheimer's Association has some information about general home safety, including firearm safety. We've developed a resource that is a web-based decision aid for caregivers, for people with dementia, to work through issues around firearm storage, transfers to other folks, sort of what you're in and out of home storage options are. It also includes information around driving and home safety, and we certainly hope that that will be
1: useful for people. Where would they be able to find that when it launches?
0: It'll be at safetyindementia.org, so safety and dementia is all in Word. It's a free resource website we developed with grant support from the National Institute on Aging.
1: Would it be a good idea if caregivers, even patients, and physicians use this tool together? Yes and no. I
0: think I certainly encourage physicians to be involved in these discussions and decisions and planting the seed for these kinds of storage changes. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that for these decisions, physicians aren't always going to be the most trusted source of information. So I think it really depends on On the situation, on where you work. In some cases we're seeing more involvement with firearm instructors, firearm retailers and ranges and some patients and caregivers may prefer to get input from those kinds of organizations and I think that's understandable. I do think for physicians though it's great to be aware of these topics, bringing them up and know what the resources in your community are.
1: Are there public policies or potential legislation that you think could help not only people with dementia and their caregivers, but physicians too, to navigate this issue more effectively?
0: So I do think that it could make sense to clarify in state laws whether and how dementia is included in prohibitions. So for right now, for example, I believe it's only Hawaii and Texas explicitly mention dementia in their state firearm ownership policies. I think there are some questions around transfers and how those work and how and when caregivers can step in. I actually think, though, in this case, a lot of it is more on the education end and encouraging these kinds of conversations, making it easier for family members to find the information they need to make decisions. And then I do think from the other policy standpoint, it'll be important to track moving forward how extreme risk protection orders are or aren't used in cases of dementia to understand whether that's something that family members and caregivers need or not.
1: Besides physicians, are other health care providers involved in this issue? Another area where this affects health care is when we think about
0: home health care workers. Again, there are no good numbers on how often a home health care worker is potentially at risk, but I certainly have heard anecdotes of Some physical therapist going in to work with a patient and there's a loaded handgun on the coffee table. And I think that's an understandable concern and question for how we approach those issues. And I would also add that it's been really wonderful to see collaborative work happening between firearm owners, firearm organizations, and suicide prevention groups. And I'm similarly excited to see some of those efforts develop between geriatrics and the firearms world and thinking about how we can really work with patients and family members to help them be safer.
1: Are there any specific examples of that collaboration with geriatric medicine?
0: It's early, but I the first example I have is Alzheimer's San Diego, which is a local nonprofit organization in the community, has been partnering with a firearm store to both have materials in the firearm store for customers about dementia, but also to train their own employees about firearm safety and firearm handling so that they feel better equipped to work with caregivers and families. And with their permission, we're actually adapting those materials to try disseminating through some of the firearm retailers that we work with here in Colorado. I would love to see at some point higher level collaborations on a national scale between geriatrics or the Alzheimer's Association, those kinds of groups. I think it's early, but I think it's coming. And I think it'll be hopefully a a really great benefit for patients and caregivers.
1: What else would you like us to know? I will add as a side note, a
0: couple years ago, as I was a pretty junior investigator, we were fortunate enough to publish a commentary on cultural competence and firearm counseling in JAMA, and it really kicked off my career in a lot of great ways. It was because of that editorial I got an email from a firearms instructor and a physician in Colorado who said, okay, you want to really do some stuff? And we together then co-founded the Firearm Safety Coalition here and have been working together ever since. And really, it's been just phenomenal.
1: That's a great note to end on. Thanks again for taking time with us today. My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much.
1: That wraps up this episode of JAMA Medical News. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Once again, I'm Becky Voker for JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.